This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Best is about the insight and the context that we get from our guests. It's a great way to catch up on some of the stories you might have missed on the Bloomberg. Stories you're not going to find in any other news organization. I'm Ed Baxter on this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best. Central banks in focus with the Fed holding steady. The progress is probably going to come in lumps and be bumpy, but we're making progress. You know, I think I think the core PCE came down by almost 60 basis points in the third quarter. And the Bank of England leaves rates unchanged as well. So today we have voted to maintain bank rates at 5.25%. Monetary policy remains restrictive. We'll look at what this means for global markets. Plus a big earnings week in the biotech sector. We hear from the CEOs of Pfizer and Moderna. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week, powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. We begin with the Federal Reserve. Chair Jerome Powell hinted the U.S. Central Bank may now be finished with the most aggressive tightening cycle in four decades after it held off on raising interest rates for a second consecutive policy meeting. During our Surveillance the Fed Decides special, Bloomberg's Tom Keene and Lisa Abramowitz got reaction from former New York Fed President Bill Dudley. I think that he's quite confident that policy is restrictive enough to slow the economy down. And I think the fact that we just had a growth quarter of nearly 5% uh, caused that a bit into question. Also, the notion that financial conditions are truly tight to slow enough to slow the economy down, I think is also uh, pretty questionable because if you look at most financial condition indexes, the, chief, the, the, the biggest impulse towards restraint really happened last year, uh, not, not right now. So I think that you know maybe they have done enough, maybe they haven't, but I think one reason why markets are hearing this so confidently is he feels very confident the Fed has done a lot, he feels policy is restrictive, and so I think you know the market's taking away the notion that he thinks he's done. Uh, and obviously, you know, that depends on how the economy evolves, what happens to inflation, what happens to the labor market. And, this, and the other thing that the market's taking a lot of uh, a positive signal from is he talked about how all these pandem- pandemic effects are, 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 are washing out now in a good way. So the labor market is becoming much more in balance. Uh, labor force growth has picked up. It's, it's a very benign story about how this is all played out. It's basically a story where the Fed really hasn't had to do that much to bring inflation down and the Fed's basically saying we don't think we're going to have to do much more from here. Chair Powell also didn't seem to think that there was any casualty in pausing, letting time go on and then restarting rate hikes. He said that that wasn't problematic at all. Do you disagree? Obviously, if it turns out that they, they, they need to do more, they're probably going to have to do more than just one quarter point move. You know, if you've taken a break for, let's say, six months and the evidence accumulates that monetary policy is not as tight as you think it is and inflation expectations are starting to become unanchored, labor market's not loosening, wages are stuck at, you know, four and a half percent, then it's unlikely that one quarter point move is just going to be sufficient to do the job. So I think it's either zero or multiple rate hikes. Which is a reason why I, I, probably some people are looking at this like yourself and saying they could be on the brink of an error. There was a question about how financial conditions really played into the Fed's decision, whether higher yields were doing their work. He had some nuance around this, talking about a sustained move higher. Take a listen to Chair Powell speaking on the issue. Persistent changes in broader financial conditions can have implications for the path of monetary policy. In this case, the tighter financial conditions we're seeing from higher long-term rates, but also from other sources 
prices like the stronger dollar and, and lower equity prices could matter for future rate decisions. With financial conditions, we're looking for persistent changes that are material. Bill Dudley, from your vantage point, does this give any clarity as to how the Fed is counting yields in their uh, picture of what restrictive really looks like? Well, I think I agree with him that persistence is what matters. I mean, if bond yields go up for a week or two and then come right back down, that's not going to exert much restraint on the economy. You know, one problem I think the chairman has at this point is by talking to the markets in a sort of supportive way, uh, stocks rally, bond yields fall. That's loosening financial conditions, and so that's removing some of the restraint uh, that was creating some uh, impetus for not tightening monetary policy further. The heart of the matter to me, Bill, and I don't want to turn this into a Dale Jorgensen's three-ratio course, and Julia Coronado's been brilliant on this as well. So let's listen to Dr. Coronado and Dr. Dudley, folks. And Bill Dudley said, barring unexpectedly fast productivity growth, there seems to be almost a hope and prayer, Bill Dudley, that this time is different and instantly we have a new elevated productivity. Do you see any signal of this in post-pandemic America? I think it's really too soon to make any decisions about productivity at all. Productivity growth took a real hit during the pandemic and then it picked up as we reopened. Uh, What what, what the trend is at this point is very, very uncertain. And and you notice that Chair Powell did not talk about productivity growth as that trend trend change. What he talked about was the labor force growth that picked up a lot because labor force participation uh, among you know adult workers has, has climbed a lot and immigration right. had picked up. So he saw so he saw that as a positive supply side uh, surprise, uh, but I don't think that the Fed or or, yeah. or, or or I for that matter think that there's a productivity growth miracle right around the corner. Bill Dudley, thank you so much. Jeffrey Rosenberg of BlackRock knows we've seen a standard deviation move. He is with their systematic multi-strategy fund. Oh, I. I can see you in the classroom as a freshman at Carnegie Mellon, Jeff Rosenberg, going, what in God's name is standard deviation? Did we get a jump condition, Jeff Rosenberg, towards a less restrictive Fed? Well, I would highlight that the main kind of differentiation is really the reaction in the front end of the curve, right? From the refunding announcement, that was really the back end, as Lisa highlighted, a little bit of the weaker data on PMIs also helping the back end rally. But the Fed market reaction was really in the front end. So I think, Powell, you want to look at the statement and you want to look at the opening to the press conference. That's what they intended to say versus what the market interpreted from the Q&A. What they intended to say was to try to be balanced. Resiliency on economic growth implies we need to stay tight, maybe do one more against the tightening of financial conditions, which implies maybe we've we've done enough. That's what they were hoping to say. Clearly what the market saw was a a preference for the worry of tightening financial conditions. We're at sufficiently restrictive. We can be done. And so you price out the little bit of probability for for the next hike. That's the market reaction. As you went over in the earlier segment with, with, with Dudley, you know, it remains to be seen. The data will dictate that. Uh, but certainly to your question, Tom, big reaction. I think a lot more of that standard deviation move has to do with refunding earlier, a mm-hmm. little bit coming out of this press conference. Well, how do you play this then, Jeff? If you think that the market is reading way too much into what Jay Powell said, which was trying to stick close to the script, although perhaps giving a different tone than people thought of, do you then sell to your notes and wait for them? 
them for yields to go back up, for them to cheapen and buy them back? Well, you know, I think it's less a question about selling the two-year note now. I think given the pricing and given the, the, the data that we have that Powell referred to, two more inflation prints, two more labor prints, and what Dudley was just hinting at, you know, are we really seeing the degree of tightness, the degree of sufficiently restrictive, given the, the trajectory of growth that we just came off of? Obviously, no one expects that to persist, but the risk there is that you, you're not pricing enough of the possibility of another hike, and so maybe you hold off on adding twos from, from at, at these levels. Yeah, Jeff, from where you sit at BlackRock, and I understand there's an index play here, but there's some active management, and you're watching everybody else in the game. What's the bet of the market right now? Is the bet that we're going to get this Fed done in a more dovish, less restrictive tone? Or is a bet, hey, we're scared stiff and we may move higher? Well, I mean, you have a num- you have a couple of different cross currents on there. You know, obviously, there's been a, a lot of talk about uh, movement into the long end, movement of of retail flows, buying the long end. That's yeah. very much kind of we're 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 at or close to the end, and we're going back to the old playbook that uh, you know once the Fed is done tightening, then you get a big rally. I think I think you got to be a little bit cautious about we're just simply going back to the old playbook, but certainly. You know, there's a degree of that in the market. And Jeff, it's about the commercial banking system of America, which the chairman alluded to maybe a little bit and maybe not enough uh, for my taste. Can we get a bond market that heals to take those bond losses and drift them away into 2025 where things can even get better if we don't get a massive bond move, but just enough of a bond move? Is that really the strategy here? No, and and you you did hear that question. It was probably one of the few questions uh, on that on that topic. I mean, this is a historic move in terms of interest rates. So you know, even if you get a, a, a modest kind of cut in interest rates that the bond market in the second half of 2024 is anticipating, uh, that's nowhere near enough to kind of unwind the unrealized losses that you're talking about from this historic move from zero to five. So that's really about a long-term story of repairing capital and dealing with those issues within within the banking system, that if if you kind of repair the funding concerns, and that was what the bank term funding question was referring to, then maybe that doesn't become a crisis moment, but it's still becomes kind of a longer-term drag in terms of capital repair, that even a, a small rally as is, is anticipated in the bond market pricing for 2024 isn't going to be sufficient to repair. That's BlackRock's Jeff Rosenberg speaking with Bloomberg's Tom Keen and Lisa Abramowitz. For the full conversation, download the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast available wherever you listen. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Coming up, The Fed wasn't the only central bank keeping things steady this week. The Bank of England had their policy vote as well. We'll hear from BOE Governor Andrew Bailey. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. On Thursday, the Bank of England left its benchmark lending rate at a 15-year high, with Governor Andrew Bailey saying it was much too early to be thinking about cuts. The central bank's Monetary Policy Committee voted 6-3 to three to maintain the key rate at 5.25%. After the BOE meeting, Governor Bailey sat down with Bloomberg's Guy Johnson to explain his outlook on the global economy. Well, the message we're giving is that we have, you know, our, our job is to get inflation down to the 2% target. Now, we've made 
a lot of progress this year, and I believe we'll make more progress in the rest of this year, but we've still got a long way to go. So, you know, I have very clear messages. We think the policy is having a restrictive effect at the moment. But I'm afraid we're going to have to maintain this stance for what we describe as an extended period of time. Yeah. What, is, what is an extended period of time? Is that a year? Is well, that six months? How, how do you, we don't I, what, know how do you, so how do you what, make that language work? What, what I described, you know, we described in the report is, is really two, we took two approaches. One is to take the market curve yep. as it was you know, a week or so ago. And that delivers inflation coming back to target, you know, broadening on the sort of two-year horizon. Uh, we also took, the, took a constant rate path, just maintaining it throughout the next yep. three years at, um, at the current rate. Brings it back a little bit quicker, but there's not much between them. So the, the key point here is, yeah, we're going to have to maintain this stance to be yeah. absolutely assured that inflation is coming back to 2%. The point in there is, though, that the market forecast, which does have cuts priced into it, albeit it was a week ago and there was only one of them, yeah. it does have a cut price in. And that mm. gets you to a situation where you've got inflation basically back down to targets within two years. It significantly reduces the risk of a recession. Isn't that, therefore, the most probable outcome when it comes to the interest rate path, i.e. at least pricing in one well, cut during that horizon? Actually, no, neither of those two um, paths had a recession in them. What, what they both have is very subdued growth. That's because at, at, at the point when we did this... But a reduced risk of a recession. Well, I mean, they, they are slightly reduced. There was only about 25 basis points difference between the two paths if you average it out over three years. So there's not much between these paths. And, and that supports the yep. story that we're saying, which is, look, we're going to have to maintain this stance yeah, yep. for an extended period Wh to ensure why, why we get to Why have you felt, though, today that you've needed to reiterate that so strongly? The language is, is, a, is a little bit more hawkish. Well, I think for two reasons. One is because we still see the risks to inflation as being on the upside at the okay. moment. And it's important not to, for that message not to get lost. Yeah, and there are several reasons why we think the risks are on the upside, but they are still on the upside. Secondly, if you don't mind me saying so, because everybody's started to ask the question about cuts. <laughs> so in a way, I think I have to, and we have to sort of lean against that and say, no, you know, we've got to maintain restrictive policy. Okay. Let's come back to that. Everybody started to talk about cuts. The market has priced it, started to price yeah. cuts. You're saying you do need to therefore lean in on that. Well, I'm not leaning against the curve that we used the other, you know, when we did yeah. the forecast because, frankly, there, was, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of difference between those two views of the, the constant throughout and the market then. But any more than that? Would you want to lean in on that? The well, what I'm going to say to this, if, if the market has taken from what we have published today a view that we are leaning towards more cuts, then I'm afraid I will lean against that. Yes. In terms of the other message that you may be giving, and that may be a broader message, inflation expectations have probably come, become more de-anchored here than maybe elsewhere. Is there therefore a reason, a need to reiterate that restricted policy will be with us for longer in order to make sure that you do, that policy does re-anchor policy back to where you would like it to be? Do you need to make that message crystal clear at this point? 
I, I don't think that inflation expectations have become more de-anchored here, actually. I think we all, all major central banks have had pretty similar experiences. And I think we're all having to give you know, variants of these messages because, frankly, yes, we've got to see uh, inflation come down. And, and there is a, you know, there, you're right in highlighting that there's an important link, obviously, between today's inflation, the expectations that people form, and therefore what inflation is going to be in the future. So yeah. it's an important... Is the, is the pain worth the gain? Is that another... But, but do you need to reiterate that side of things as well? That, yes, we're going to have restricted policy. We are going to re-anchor policy. But it's going to be worth it. Well, I do, yeah, I do strongly believe that because I, I do say often, and, and it's important to say it, that, of course, if we continue in a situation where inflation is, is above target, then that's going to be a worse outcome. Do you think we are heading for an environment where rates are are higher for longer. Let's talk a little bit about the curve. I know you don't want to lean on the curve, but let's talk about the curve. The curve, over the, certainly since the last meeting, has steepened significantly at the long end. Got a bear steepening. Long end rates have come up, hmm. curves flat as a pancake. Why do you think that is, firstly? Jay Powell's talked about term premium. There's deficit pricing going in there. You talked in the introduction about maybe a higher R-star neutral rate. It could be stickier inflation. I, firstly, why do you think that has happened? What message is, is the long end of the curve sending? I think, I think there's one or two things that we're picking up from there. I do think that the higher for longer message has you know, been absorbed over this period that you're describing. So you go back to the summer, I think it's a fair, yep. a fair, a fair point to sort of start. I do think that the market has absorbed this, from, from central banks in the plural, has, has absorbed this message uh, and it's got reflected in curves. I think there's a term premium element as well, as you rightly say. What I would say there is that there is a, there is a very large, what I would call sort of global element to that. Sure. Um, and in, in, interestingly, I think if you look at the UK and the Euro area together in yep. terms of, of, of curve movements, Pretty similar yep. sorts of numbers. US, though, quite a lot bigger. Yep. It is, so there is a bit of term premium in there. Is there a danger that, that the US curve steepens up, stays elevated, and we end up importing tighter monetary conditions, tighter financial conditions as a result of that, when actually the economy may not need that? There's a sort of gravitational effect between treasuries, gilts, bunts, and we may end up, because of that story, being too tight here? Well, we always, of course, have to factor that into our policy setting and we have to factor that into our forecast. And we will do that, obviously. That's, that's why we, yeah, we importantly condition on a market curve because it gives us an ability to, to do just that. So if we get more of that, I mean, we will obviously, you know, obviously do that and you know, adjust our sort of, you know, yep. adjust our judgment accordingly. Final question, would there be a way of leaning in on that? Could you adjust twist QT, for instance, to kind of alter the shape of the curve, maybe to deal with that imported financial well, condition? we've taken quite a, a strong position that we're not running QT to move the curve around, yep. um, that we're running it in, a, in what I call a neutral fashion in that sense. And I, it, would, um, it would frankly take a lot to move me from that position. I think on the whole, I think that's, you know, as well as my, my mother used to say, it'd be a bit clever, too clever by half. Yep. Um, so I don't know if it's just doing that now. That's Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, speaking with our Francine Lacqua. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. And coming up, it was a big week for biotech earnings. We'll hear from the chief executives of Pfizer and Moderna. I'm Ed Baxter. This is Bloomberg. 
Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 99.1. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. A little more than two weeks after Pfizer shocked the market by cutting $9 billion from its full-year scales guidance as a result of plummeting demand for its COVID products, sales of its vaccine and pill once again disappointed. For more details on Pfizer's earnings report and the future of the company, Bloomberg's David Weston spoke with the company's CEO, Albert Bourla. The earnings actually was quite good when it comes to the non-COVID products, as you said. We were growing 10%. And for the COVID, we had given the news two weeks ago, we made some important announcements that we rebased our COVID expectations, and also we took a lot of write-offs. Uh, so all of that came this quarter. So following the uh, COVID uh, era for Pfizer, I would call it the COVID crisis, because still COVID, I think, will be around and uh, will be a significant part of our revenues, but will not be the epicenter of everything we do. I think the epicenter moves to the acquisition of Citizen, so moves to cancer, we are putting a lot of capital over there, and we are hoping that we will be able to make a big difference on cancer, as we did with COVID. It's coming through our 19 new launches that we are expected to have, and actually 18 of them already are happening right now, which will propel the growth of the company as we are moving ahead. And of course, the vaccines is a crown jewel. We'll continue bringing products. So as you say, we're going to get to the other non-COVID issues. But before that, you said COVID's still around. Uh, I just got my shot two weeks ago. It was a Pfizer shot. Uh, but where are you right now in the uptake of the vaccine this time? Because ironically, a lot of us are getting sort of a little inured to the dangers of COVID. Uh, what are you anticipating in terms of vaccination rates? Right now in the U.S., we were anticipating before uh, in the beginning of the year, around 24% of Americans will take a COVID shot. Right now, it's trending towards 17. But of course, we need to wait until the end of the year to see. If you take into consideration from January until now, maybe 75 to 8% of Americans have received the shot. And then we are expecting this month to be very important right now. What about follow-ons on mRNA? I know that originally, I think that you were working with Biontech on a flu mRNA. Where are you in that process? We have a COVID flu. Uh, combination vaccine uh, that uh, passed all the tests in phase two, so it's ready to move to phase three. That gives us high confidence that will be with us in the period of 25. We also presented for the first time data for a single flu, which is again mRNA, where it is the first time that the mRNA flu vaccine demonstrated non-inferiority and superiority against the standard of care. So we are moving very uh, rapidly in creating combinations with COVID. I saw before that 17% of people are getting COVID, but 48% of people are getting flu. So I think that if you have a flu-COVID combination, that it is given at the same cost because it's going to be zero copay with the convenience of one injection, that will move the, um, the number of people that are getting COVID uh, to higher levels. Where are we in that process? I mean, I got two shots. I got a flu shot and I got a, a COVID shot at the same time. How far are we away from having one shot? I think in 25 we will have it. Of course, if science yeah. keeps proving that we are right, 
but uh, our timeline is this in the flu season of 25 we'll have a combination vaccine. So let's talk about the non-COVID, the other part of it that you talked about that did show growth, organic yeah. growth uh, in your earnings. 10%. 10%. Sorry, I don't mean to tell you short. 10%. No, there you uh, go. It's an impressive and they're very proud. <laughs> That's right. Uh, when you look at those uh, products that are coming online, how many of those are grown internally and how many of those are through acquisition? Uh, there are, uh, from the 19 launches that we are expecting, 18 are happening this year. Uh, we expect four from the outside, 14 from the inside. Some examples of the inside things that came from our own pipeline is the RSV vaccine. Mm -hmm. This is, was a significant uh, bit for the earnings. Everybody, including us, were surprised how much people demand exists for this vaccine. We had the pneumococcal vaccine, but also was a very big bit. Again, we were surprised how quickly we are taking back the share from a previous vaccine that had uh, displaced us for a few months only. Um, we are having... Uh, uh, immunoinflammation assets. We are having three or four oncology cancer assets with the first uh, product that we lost against lymphoma. So it's a variety of products. Now, from the outside, very good example, Nurtec. Uh, it's a, a great uh, product. It's for migraines. Um, in October, we had the highest ever week with the highest scripts ever. Right now, seven, more than 70,000 physicians in the U.S. are prescribing Nurtec. Hmm. What about sickle cell? You sickle cell is doing as well as I recall. That's the second one, and the sickle cell, not only the one that we have, is doing very well, but also we are progressing a second generation that will be way, way more uh, efficient. If again the the now the the, the science uh, is with, in our favor, uh, because those patients are really suffering the sickle cell disease patients. You mentioned CGEN, uh, that acquisition. As I understand, it's been approved by the European Union, but not yet by the United States. Where are you in that process? We are now, the, the last step that remains is the U.S. clearance. Uh, as you said, two weeks ago, we got unconditional clearance from the European Union, uh, where they saw no overlap and no need for any further action. Uh, we are now discussing with the U.S. FTC. Uh, we are very collaborative with, with uh, our discussion with them. And still, we expect that uh, the deal will close before the end of uh, the year or early next year. And if, in fact, it does close, as you say, what will that mean for your income statement? Oh, it will mean, first of all, that we are getting a significant pipeline products that we need to invest. It's not that uh, it's coming free, and we will continue investing on that. But it's coming with four already registered products uh, that uh, this uh, year they are in the 2.3, 2.4, I don't know, Expect, uh, what the analysts are expecting, and it's growing exponentially. So it's going to be, we expect that season will give us $10 billion of revenues by year 2030. Are you still in the market for more acquisitions? Oh, yes. But of course, right now, this is a very big one. Mm -hmm. And already we have done a few before that. So we want to consolidate uh, right now and integrate the two organizations very successfully. So I expect 24 that is not going to be a major M&A activity from our side. It's going to be, but not a major M&A, because we want first to consolidate that, start deleveraging a little bit. And then, of course, we have way until we make 25 billions of revenues by year 2030. Well, and let me get to the overall numbers, because you've been very open about the fact you have some patents coming up, uh, and so you have to replace that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the number was. I think I heard 17 billion? 17, and 17. Uh, I think maybe 16 now. 16, well, that's what I was going to ask. How far are you to filling that $17 billion hole? Well, the acquisitions that we have done so far 
uh, are giving us 20 billion uh, revenues by year 2030. So we're going to lose 16 likely, and we are going to replace with 20 by year 2030. Uh, and that's only for the acquisitions that we did. Now we are launching uh, 18 products. This year, I think, should be the 18th. We estimate that they will give another 20 billions. That will be basically the growth. And of course, on top of that are all the pipeline assets. One of the very hot topics, as you know, is weight loss drugs right now. It is. Led by Novador, Nordisk, and Ozempic, things like that. Yes. You have had some products that you've been pursuing. I think one you had to drop out in trial. Correct. You have at least one more, maybe two more in, in process. Give us an update on where Pfizer is in developing a rival for uh, Ozempic. Yeah. First of all, we need to understand that those products are injectable, the mm -hmm. Ozempic, and uh, the product of uh, Eli Lilly. Very, very good product. Um, what we are working is oral presentation of these products. Um, we have one, which is uh, Danu, that it is progressing right now, is in phase two, and we expect to have uh, readouts by the end of the year. And uh, we announced, we, we put in our website, so people saw it, that we have another molecule that we brought into the clinic, which is a follow-on molecule to that. So we are waiting to see the results. It's all about data. Data will speak. If the data are good, we are going to move into phase three. If you have an oral version and you take it through trial successfully, how many doses a day? Right now, the current pilot is twice a day, but we have uh, working in uh, reformulating that. And we feel confident that if it moves, we will be able to do it in once a day. And will that be as effective in your judgment, in all likelihood, as Ozempic, for example? We need to see the date. That's Pfizer CEO Albert Burla speaking with our David Weston. You're listening to Bloomberg Best, and coming up, we stick with biotech earnings and check with the chief executive of Moderna. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. Moderna released earnings this week, and the vaccine maker said it expected revenue to fall sharply next year to well below what analysts were expecting. Moderna sees revenue falling to about $4 billion next year, with sales growth resuming in 2025 as new vaccines hit the market. For the company's path ahead, Bloomberg's Alex Steele and Guy Johnson spoke with Moderna CEO Stefan Bansell. We say we're going to right-size manufacturing because, you know, we build manufacturing to deal with a COVID, you know, a pandemic. Uh, but now that we're going back into endemic setting, we don't need as much capacity. And our cost structure was too high. So we're taking a one-time hit. There's a tiny bit of it that will be in Q4 just because accounting rule, $200 million of that. But that's, that's a one-time thing. With this, we have a right size to deal with a company. And then we'll be able to grow with the new plants that we are building in Canada, in the UK, and Australia. So, so mm -hmm. going to be good. Uh, Stefan, just one more piece on that, though. Do, do we know why the COVID uptake shot has just not been as good? And I'm also wondering if there's been any sort of shift because of how the U.S., pays for it. Like it's not the government, it's now an insurance. And has that kind of changed the, the COVID take up? So if you look at the COVID market in the US, it's trending a little bit above last year. I think it's still too early to tell where it's going to finish the season because we're hearing that, you know, there's still a lot of desire to get vaccinated in November and December. So, so let's see. But I don't think that it's a commercial market has changed things because for the consumer, it's still free. If you're insured, you work in the pharmacy, you get your shot. Uh, and you walk out, you don't pay anything of copay. So I don't think the, the fact that it's commercial now changes anything. Stefan, you are, though, going to be leaning much less now on what is happening with COVID and focusing more elsewhere. But nevertheless, I do wonder whether the 
the the scaling back of the COVID side of the business means that ultimately you're going to struggle to generate the top line, the revenue necessary to make that transition to the next phase. How would you answer that kind of a question and that kind of concern at the moment that exists? I think there's a, two questions people have. It's first is where's the bottom of COVID? And we think the sales next year will be around $4 billion. Mm -hmm. We think that's what's going to be the base of COVID. And then it's a new product. Six phase three, we're going to launch RSV next year. We have flu product with great phase three data, flu COVID combo, the cancer product. So if you think about it, we think that we have a 4 billion ish of COVID base. And then you're going to layer on that new products coming. And those products are very, very close starting in 24. So you have to get there, though, first, and you're planning to spend like $25 billion over the next five years. If you don't reach that $4 billion uh, base for COVID shots, when do you start considering cutting your other programs? Yeah, so we look into, into this if we have to. I think it's more for a 25 time frame. I think in 24, we're pretty comfortable with the numbers. The other piece about RSV we just spoke about. You know, RSV, we have a best-in-class mm -hmm. product, we believe, with very high you know, efficacy, very good safety. And it's going to be very good because it's pre-filled syringe. The other products on the market today have many, many steps of preparation. As you know, in pharmacies, you even have worker walking out on strike because it's too complicated. The workload is too big. And that's a big market. Just on the Q3 sales, the two players on the market reported $1.2 billion for the quarter Q3. So if you think about this market, that's a brand new market. We might be the leading company once we launch because we believe we have the best product. Stefan. The biotech sector is getting hit pretty hard right now, certainly within the stock market. And I'm wondering when you think that phase is going to bottom out. And I'm wondering as well whether or not you think there are opportunities within there. You're doing quite a lot at the moment with what you've got. But I'm wondering as you look across the landscape, whether there would be potential bolt-ons at current valuations. Are you going through that process at the moment, thinking of how synergies, how opportunities could evolve? Yes, very much so. I mean, we bought a company in Japan during the Christmas break last year. We've done a couple of deals this year, a company in Germany, a company in the US. So we think there's very interesting companies out there. As you say, the environment for biotech is very hard now. And mm. I think as long as the long-term rates stay high, uh, you know, biotech, because it's many, many years to launch and it's quite risky, uh, a very different cost of capital than it used to have when you know interest rates were close to zero. That's Moderna CEO Stefan Bansell. And that's it for this hour of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. Stick with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. <laughs>